Hello everyone, it's September 27th, 2022. This week we're taking a look at Rocket Lab's Neutron update and all the other cool stuff that's going on there. Then we're going to take a look at that JWST instrument anomaly. Let's hope it's nothing too serious. L2 is quite a trick. But let's get the show off the ground first and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 378 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. And I'm Dennis. Ben's out this week. He's on a business trip. Yeah, he's traveling. He's, he's out and about. And and if he thought about <laughs> if he did try to make this episode, how just unrealistically taxing that would have been between these trips. I think he's on even more than one, if I remember correctly. <laughs> yeah. And so. And it's difficult when you, when you have to bring all your equipment with you and, you know. Because these microphones are not light. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. And uh, we will miss him because this would be a perfect uh, Ben's update on SLS <laughs> and Artemis oh, 1 yeah, being yeah. delayed again. There's just so much to it. I don't know about you. I can't keep track. I just basically wait for Ben to tell me. Um, what the latest is in terms of <laughs> Windows and oh yeah, for sure. No earlier, no ten, yeah, yeah. But at the top of the show, um, you can tell us about Outpost. What is Outpost? Yeah, I, I uh, was just looking through uh, Parabolic Arc, and they had two articles, both on this company Outpost, and this is something pretty neat. And I don't know if I'd ever run across it before and had just forgotten, but this is. Uh, new to me, but it's one of these uh, attempts to uh, have payloads that you can recover from orbit. So you put it up there, I guess, with something else, and you attach outposts, uh, I guess, uh, re-entry system, and then they can deorbit your payload, and you can get it back to Earth and actually do precision landings. And so, but the one thing about this that you know we have heard before is that uh, one of these two news stories is about the. Uh, uh, I don't know if you say it, HIAD or HIAD, but that uh, NASA's yeah. hypersonic inflatable aerodynamic decelerator. Do you say HIAD? Uh, I think that's what we say, yeah. I mean, it's it's there for the saying. <laughs> you know, that's not, mm-hmm. you're not forcing it too much. But apparently, yeah, I guess it's pretty cool. Like, this is a NASA technology, right? Large inflatable heat shield. And Outpost signed a Space Act agreement with Langley, yeah, uh, NASA Langley, to be able to use and develop the HIAD specifically for their reentry system. And so uh, I guess the, the idea is that at some point in the future, <laughs> uh, you stick uh, outpost system onto your payload, you launch on a Falcon 9 or whatever you want, uh, you get in the LEO, you do your science or your observing or in-orbit servicing and manufacturing or whatever, and then you want to bring it back to Earth. And then I guess this heat shield... Uh, inflates, <laughs> uh, decelerates yeah. you. And then the other big thing, and they, they've actually done these, I guess, drop tests. The uh, After that, um, brings you back into reentry, right? We know how, especially for uncontrolled reentries, how it's kind of a crapshoot where you land. But they have a uh, paraglider that can deploy at fairly high altitudes. They, they tested it, I think, at like tens of kilometers, like 20 kilometers or so. And so you can do a precision landing to where you want your payload to return. And, uh, yeah, so this paraglider, they've done a couple of these drop tests where this, uh, yeah, after the heat shield slows you down, a paraglider pops out, you know, a drogue, and then a paraglider, and lets you bring it back to where you want it to be. (laughs) 
Yeah, it's pretty neat. It, yeah, and it does look like a capsule with just doing some paragliding. It looks like a you know like a little beach activity type of a yeah. thing there. But it's interesting. You said that they signed uh, what was it called with uh, NASA Langley? A reimbursable Space Act agreement. That's pretty interesting because I do like to see that when like NASA does some you know, fundamental research, and then they kind of pass it on to some other companies mm. and say, hey, you know, make a business with it and, you mm -hmm. know, do something cool with it because it hasn't really done much else otherwise. Like the whole high-ed concept, you know, we, we've been talking about it for mm. a pretty long time. So I'm glad to see somebody taking that ball and running with it yeah, uh, and sure. adding a paraglider. <laughs> <laughs> right. No. And, that, and that's cool. This is something that seems it's going to be kind of a next generation technology, something totally new and different, but it's not audacious. It's yeah. it's just cool. And it in principle sounds like it should and can work. And so mm -hmm. I look forward to seeing these happening in the next handful of years, I guess. So Rocket Lab updates. So we've been doing uh, a lot of SLS updates, but this is a nice refreshing change. Uh, Rocket Lab. So recently, specifically, they did an investor update. So this is like for investors, a, a presentation, sort of a state of the union of the company. I don't know what that's called when you do that. I, I, I don't know investor. I don't know finance speak, but this is a, you know, kind of like a presentation for the investors. And there's a lot of interesting details on Neutron, which to me is the most interesting thing um, that they're currently doing or currently working on. I do recall in the video uh, at some point, I think it was Peter Beck who said that for anyone who has any doubts about Neutron, you know, this is something that yeah, they are currently working on. It, it's not just a concept that they're going to get to at some point, um, mm. which, you know, I kind of assumed that they were doing something, you know, like actually substantial because uh, that seems to be their track record. Mm. Um, but yeah, so what news do we have about this company that might affect your investment plans <laughs> with Rocket Lab? <laughs> oh, yeah. And always the obligatory full disclosure, you own stock, right? I own and stock, And so does yeah. Ben, but he's not here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Ben and I, uh, we, we do own some publicly traded Rocket Lab stock. Um, I can't imagine it's, it's, it's not much and my uh, opinion on things doesn't move anything. But just... Just specifically because this is an investor presentation, right? So this is designed to kind of rally and cheerlead for the company. And so it could sound almost like I'm trying to sell you something um, with a, a conflict of interest if I were to just repeat everything. But really, this is just cool space stuff that we would have talked about mm -hmm. in any other context. So <laughs> that's why I'm, I'm comfortable ch uh, chatting about it. So since it being the company-wide thing and it's – almost impossible to keep track of all the different things Rocket Lab's doing. So they touched on, you know, the Electron, the recovery system, where they are with moving forward with uh, scooping those up on reentry with a helicopter. They talked about their space missions. They got the Venus one and a Mars one um, with the Photon uh, uh, spacecraft uh, bus that they have and all this stuff but like you're saying david i'm with you 100 that the most interesting and exciting bit for me too is the neutron right their next generation much larger lift vehicle which i guess would be in a falcon 9-ish class very reusable peter beck referred uh, used the analogy of a uh, a turkey like a uh, a turkey you would eat <laughs> not so much just a wild animal uh, gobbling around but um that it really at the beginning just looks doesn't look very pleasant it's pretty rough and ugly and non-appetizing appearing when it's just raw meat. Maybe you got still pluck those feathers off of the, the critter and you got to stuff it 
with all sorts of stuff. But then after you take it out in the oven and you present it on the table, then everybody's like, oh, this looks delicious. I love it. And so that's kind of how he wanted to, he made an analogy for the neutron, where right now it's it's rough. There are some substantial things that are happening, but it's really going to be when the finished product starts to really come together. Um, but the updates, uh, like you were saying, right, that they, you know, presumably were doing some real stuff. And indeed, uh, the way he was describing carbon composite is that because of the way the material uh, is worked with, you really need to go and build the tooling once you settle on kind of how you want to form some of these tanks. And so they've already built the tools as well as parts of some of the tanks. And so by the end of the year, they're hoping to actually have uh, neutron tanks. And just in, uh, if you don't remember, because it's always, I think, helpful to put things in context, um, right? Neutron is kind of the squat <laughs> looking, right? It, like I already mentioned, it's their next generation heavier lift vehicle uh, in that kind of medium lift class. But it's it's a very squat looking, I don't know, almost like a, a bullet, but even stubbier than a typical kind of bullet, I guess. It has a pretty wide base, and that's just because, mm. um, you know, they say that that, that will help with landing. Mm. You don't have to have these big legs that fold out because it's, you know, it already has a wide enough base that that shouldn't be an issue. Um, mm -hmm. Plus, it also yeah. might help with reentry as well, I think, maybe. And there's a lot of other aerodynamics going on there, too. So Exactly, exactly. Having that changes the ballistic coefficient in a way to slow mm -hmm. it down quickly so that it doesn't spend a lot of time heating up. And so you decelerate quickly. For for us <laughs> to get <laughs> into the weeds about things, uh, one of the other things I think when we first saw Neutron was talking about the hungry hippo fairing, uh, where it kind of opens up yeah. like jaws. And it had uh, four jaws, I guess, initially, but now they've settled down on two. So it will just kind of split in half, I suppose. But um, but yeah, so that's, that's one change that has happened. Uh, something that it's funny because... It appeared in one slide, and Peter Beck might have talked about it for 20, 30 seconds. And the whole time he talked about it, he emphasized that this is not a crew announcement. But you can imagine every single news article is going to mention what I'm about to say. But yeah, so they, they, they showed a, uh, a capsule, what a capsule could look like for neutrons. So this is not a real thing that they're actively seeking at this point or at least this is not sorry this is not an announcement of something uh, of a neutron crew compartment kind of like uh how uh, uh Ariane Spas announced Susie last week uh, that that was a true announcement but essentially if you ever played the game which we did with the show uh like uh patrons and you know people in discord we played uh among us uh a couple of years ago mm -hmm. i remember playing that with you guys and um it looks like one of the little space characters from among us this sort of uh rendering of a neutron uh, crew vehicle and so that's pretty cool so this uh it, it's it's basically like i mean you just replace the fairing with roughly the shape of a or that same shape and just instead put a window on it i guess <laughs> yeah and a, a docking port on the on the front end and voila you've got yourself a uh, a not a capsule announcement announcement yeah I found a little graphic that said it's not a capsule, but we're looking into it. So I hope they yeah. are. Yeah, it looks like you could fit a good number of people in there too. Pretty cool. And then I feel like the other kind of big thing that came out of the investor presentation. I mean, like I said, they they you know want to give <laughs> the what's the address called? Um, State of the Union address for oh, the whole yeah. company. So <laughs> right, <laughs> sorry. They, so they cover so many things, but the the other one that I think is really exciting is that. Um, the Neutron, right, the idea that they had already announced was that the factory for churning these out will be at Wallops. But they um, had signed uh, a lease to uh, 
test the neutron engines at Stennis. Yeah, they're going to build the Archi or not build, but they're I guess establishing the Archimedes test complex there. And so it's a uh, it's a million square feet at Stennis, um, right? Stennis famous uh, testing station for. Mm -hmm area for firing uh doing your static fires and tests of your rocket engines and uh it's it's a 10-year lease with a 10-year renewal option afterwards and specifically they're going to be using the a3 test stand which is uh one that was originally intended for the j2x engines which were going to be i guess an upgrade of the j2s on saturn and we're going to at one point show up on constellation but with you know, Aries and Constellation going under, that stand kind of got opened up and I guess uh, was available for companies to lease it. <laughs> and so that's exactly what Rocket Lab's done. And uh, yeah, so, so just, I mean, I already referred to them, right? These are the uh, Archimedes engines. And so these are uh, oxygen-rich stage combustion methylox. And yeah, so that's interesting. Um, pretty cool. There's going to be, and there's going to be nine of them on the first stage neutron with one, uh, uh, vacuum optimized one for the upper stage. So can't think of any other companies that do something similar to that. <laughs> and it's interesting that because according to the presentation, they tested all other types of engine cycles. And, you know, this is what they settled on because it gave you the most ISP while also somehow being the most reliable. But that's mostly because they didn't want to push the boundary of what's possible with these engines. So they basically wanted to design an engine that could be reused many, many times. So that means that you don't want to be, you know, operating at uh, the very threshold of the thing basically mm -hmm. i mean not necessarily like blowing up but you know becoming unusable sooner Safe. than later so yeah so that there's a lot of margin in there keep it uh keep it under 70 on the highways because you know you want this thing to last yeah. a while <laughs> yeah it is interesting how the oxygen rich stage combustion it seems like because we were just talking about this with another engine i don't remember what but it's more common i guess or becoming perhaps more common than we would have thought mm -hmm. um just because especially for a reusable engine so it's reusable and it's oxygen rich and i think what was it we were talking about just the other week how that didn't those two didn't seem to go together like mm -hmm. you can't it can't be oxygen rich and reusable because that you know creates a lot of corrosion and before you know it you're not gonna be able to use that engine so it's just you know a one-time use only but there's been some you know i guess a lot of progress made in terms of the types of alloys that they use in you know they can pull this off. Yeah, I do uh, have yeah the recollection of us talking about it at some point fairly recently. So yeah, so that's um that was kind of it from the uh, investors presentation. Can't touch on anything, but I guess the only other kind of exciting news uh, that's I, that I want to mention is that uh, uh, the Wallops flight uh, from Mars, Mid Atlantic Regional Air uh, Spaceport, uh, hopefully uh, before the end of the year, we'll actually see an electron fly out of there. So that'll be cool. Very cool. Moving right along then to the next uh, story for this week, the JWST instrument anomaly. So we got two uh, news stories that aren't quite short and sweet, but they're you know they're they're not very very yeah. extensive. But this is one that I kept I kept seeing this reference, and I kind of wanted to just look into what they really meant was happening with uh, one of JWST's instruments. And so, uh, of its four major instruments, uh, MIRI, the mid infrared instrument, uh, is the one that uh, has apparently had one of its four modes. <laughs> They've stopped using it while they're investigating what's going on. Being mid-infrared, uh, all the other ones uh, on JWST are near-infrared, uh, near-cam, nearest, mm -hmm. and uh, near-spec. Yeah, so when we had uh, Tupper Hyde on in episode 345, uh, just earlier this year, I think, Tupper Hyde of uh, NASA Goddard, uh, and, and we covered a lot about mechanical details of JWST and the fine guidance sensor in particular, but um, we did at least mention MIRI uh, in that uh, interview, as well as uh, 
than just doing a bend deep dive into the cryo cooler itself. And so that was a lot of fun. So you, you want to re-listen to that. That was a great uh, interview. But uh, so Miri, uh, the four modes that it can do uh, includes imaging. And so I'm sure some of the uh, awesome JWST images that have been released, uh, if you hadn't noticed, uh, you go back and look at them. Uh, some of them are indeed Miri ones. Um, and there's a, lot, a number of filters, too, available. And so that's why some of these ones that are kind of... Uh, overlays uh, of multiple uh, different pictures that were taken uh, with different color schemes. Those are ones uh, that were done with Miri, um, some of the ones at least. And then uh, it also is capable of coronography. It has a few different masks for blocking out light from your objects so you can see around it. Um, and then it does spectroscopy. Uh, and that includes a low resolution mode and a medium resolution mode where the idea is, right, if you're doing if low resolution, and this is spectral resolution, like how much can you distinguish between different wavelengths or frequencies? Uh, if you do low resolution, um, you can't distinguish quite as much, but maybe that's good enough for your case. And because you're not dispersing light as much, you get better signal to noise for a given observation. Whereas medium resolution, you spread the light out further, so now you can distinguish between different wavelengths and frequencies better, but you need to integrate longer to be able to get up to that same signal to noise that you would with low resolution. And so it's the medium res uh, spectroscopy uh, instrument, which is an IFU, uh, integral field unit. So basically a hyperspectral imager. <laughs> it's got uh, imaging, uh, it's got pixels uh, that each one is capable of measuring a wavelength. And um, it's got an issue. And the issue apparently is, is this, this uh, a mechanism supporting it is exhibiting what appears to be increased friction. So that last bit is in quotes from NASA exhibiting what appears to be increased friction. And I'm not exactly sure what to make of that. Whatever it was, it was noticed in late August and they, I guess, uh, assigned a group to investigate it in more detail uh, a few weeks uh, ago. And so they're still looking into it. Uh, it's now become a news story, but they're familiar with it. And they've really uh, downplayed how dangerous or big a deal or much of a problem that this is, um, right? There's the International Astronautical Congress, all uh, not all, but like last week. And uh, Thomas Serbukin uh, there uh, was talking about how uh, even though this uh, is an issue, and, and there were other people, I guess, on the JWSC team there as well. Um, he wasn't the only one talking about it. But that even though this is a, a problem, they're doing this really out of a, an overabundance of caution. And that long term, they think the instrument will be able to use this medium resolution spectrum mode. Uh, but since they saw this uh, mechanism acting a little funny in terms of the friction it's encountering, they want to make sure that they understand it before they just use it that uh, the instrument anymore and so or that mode anymore and so they're still continuing with the other three that's not a problem so hopefully this will be an easy resolution and they're just being better to be safe than sorry makes sense when you have a mm -hmm. something that's as expensive as jwst yeah i wonder what the long term or i'm wondering why it's not thought to be long term like what gives mm -hmm. them that confidence but i guess we'd have to know more about exactly what went wrong or is going right. wrong um so yeah i, I guess it's fixable mm. or maybe at least can be compensated for in some way or you know what i mean like yeah yeah that that, that was exactly what i was thinking about is it going to be something that they can live with <laughs> yeah and they just the the way the instruments used or uh, i guess put into active mode mm -hmm. they could do it in a way that this won't be a problem because you don't want things to be operating outside of their design specs and <laughs> cause trouble mm -hmm. that way and so because uh, you don't want it to fail because we can't send astronauts out there to go fix it. <laughs> nope. Not anytime soon. <laughs> not anytime soon. Yeah. 
Let's do three short and sweets again this week. I think last week we did four, but we're back to three. So mm. what is the first one, Dennis? First up, USSF to leave GEO. Following the launches of its next-gen Overhead Persistent Infrared, or OPIR, satellites, the U.S. Space Force will be moving away from putting large, expensive, and powerful spacecraft in GEO. Instead, developing satellites for lower orbits will be faster and cheaper and provide greater resiliency. Building the traditional large GEO satellites for missile warning systems involves seven-year development contracts. And by focusing on non-GEO, the government hopes to reduce it closer to two-year cycles. And then next up, Super Heavy fires seven engines. The first stage of SpaceX's next-gen vehicle, Super Heavy, has recently had seven of its engines fired during a static test. This more than doubles the number of engines that have been test-fired to date. The firing of Booster 7 lasted about 10 seconds, and a tweet from Elon Musk said that the booster will now be returned to Starbase's high bay for quote-unquote robustness upgrades, while another booster rolls out for more testing. The next big milestone will be a full-stack wet dress rehearsal, then a 33-engine firing in a few weeks. Spin launch raises $71 million. The Long Beach, California company that has been raising eyebrows recently has raised $71 million in a Series B round led by ATW Partners. This brings the total spin launch has raised to date to $150 million to be used for its unique next-gen launch system that uses a giant centrifuge as its first stage. The company has built and tested a smaller version of the centrifuge in Spaceport America for suborbital tests and projects beginning orbital launches with the larger 100-meter diameter accelerator as soon as 2026, although it has not been announced where that accelerator will be based. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns. And uh, I think a correction, is this from you? Is this a self-correction, an auto-correction? Oh, no. I mean, I could have self-burned, I'm sure, uh, okay. a number of different ways. But uh, no, this is actually a comment uh, elaborating on the last week's Twisif. And so uh, shout out and thank you to Gopal, who is in the chat with us right now. He had pointed us to a Scott Manley video. And so we'll have uh, that also in our show notes. But essentially, uh, right, if you'll recall... Uh, last week's Twisif was about the Soyuz T-10A uh, pad abort, when the two cosmonauts, right, there was the fire uh, around them, and the launch escape system on the Soyuz managed to go and pull them away. The three-module Soyuz spacecraft, uh, only the upper two modules, the orbital and descent module, get pulled away, and the descent module, the one that they're in, the bell-shaped one in the middle of the three modules, uh, is the one that returns to Earth, A-OK, under parachute. So that worked out all fine and everything, but what Gobel pointed out from the Scott Manley video is that according to, I'm just name dropping left and right here, according to Anatoly Zak of RussianSpaceWeb.com, that that same descent module was then later reused in Soyuz T-15, which is cool because Soyuz T-15, you might recall, is the one that we had talked about in episode 300 as the Soyuz that went and visited multiple space stations in a single uh, mission. And so this was the one that went back and forth between, I think it was a Soyuz 7 and Mir. And there was a cool history behind that. We talk about it then, there. And so this, uh, that, that spacecraft, uh, that descent module that did this, I, you know, the only time you went bouncing around between several space stations, different space stations to go. And um, basically, there were some leftover uh, experiments, I think, in the Soyuz 7 that had to be abandoned because one of the cosmonauts had gotten very uh, ill during the mission. And as a result, uh, Soyuz T-15 went there, uh, grabbed some of the equipment, and then went to Mir, and then, you know, uh, had some kind of uh, 
back and forth uh, like that. And I guess one other further elaboration or clarification, um, hmm. since we do those a yeah, lot. Yeah, now's too. the time to do it. <laughs> yeah. So you had uh, the other day. Uh, we're still wondering about during that twist that you did last week about what caused uh, the failure of the launch vehicle. Uh, that caused uh, this whole emergency escape. And so we were wondering why it was or how exactly nitrogen got into a turbo pump when mm. there should have been fuel there. And mm. the best thing that we could come up with, I mean, the best thing that I can come up with, and I don't know what else it could be, is that maybe there was like, you know, a purge of the engine and that there was a valve that was supposed to cut the, or that was supposed to block the engine from the turbo pump assembly. And then that way, the nitrogen wouldn't get up into the turbo pump. And so maybe that the valve failure that they're talking about, that's maybe what that was. And so that's mm. maybe how, you know, what caused gas to get into the turbo pump, which then caused it to spin up at too high of a speed and then the whole thing blew apart. So it was an interesting question that we still didn't get um, any solid answer to, or at least I couldn't find one, but I found some interesting articles that referenced this particular problem maybe happening in some other rocket engines. And I figured, why couldn't that happen to a, whatever the engine was, the turbo pump of that particular engine? Oh, it's a RD-170 or a 171 or a 170D or (laughs) something like that. Yeah, (laughs) one of those. It was one of those RD engines. Yeah. I was kind of wondering, as far as nitrogen purges go, they this is a common practice for the combustion chamber of the engine. I don't know about the turbo pump itself, so maybe you also do that with the turbo pump, but then, of course, you know, you vent the gas. But if there's a faulty valve, then maybe that gas doesn't get vented, and so that could be what happened. I don't know if purging the turbo pump with nitrogen is something that's normally done, though. And from what I understand, it's basically just to remove any kind of possible debris from at least the combustion chamber because it's more possible that something might get up into the combustion chamber, but you'd have to go up into some you know, fairly narrow plumbing, I think, in order to get to the turbo pump. It's probably not as likely in that section, but if anyone has any better guess, then let us know. But uh, it is a bit of an interesting question. How does nitrogen get into a turbo pump when there's a who knows how many hundreds of thousands of gallons of fuel sitting on top of it? No, that's, yeah, thanks for bringing that up because, yeah, we had the... Uh, offline conversation about that <laughs> outside the show, yeah. uh, trying to get to the bottom of it. Yeah, and the idea—I mean, at T minus ninety seconds, it was it, the fuel tank was clearly filled at that point. Um, it had been mm-hmm. filled for hours, and so the, yeah, how do you get that nitrogen in there? And so I think—I mean, yeah—I I, I think you've given a plausible explanation for it. And yeah, and the, and the last a last point that when we looked into this, I kind of was speculating about, you know, if you spin up this turbine too much, what what was the failing? really. And I'd seen some sources that did talk about how if you did end up over spinning a turbine with, say, nitrogen gas before a launch, that you could very well end up with like shrapnel and debris just exploding everywhere. And so mm-hmm. the fact that the fuel tank was adjacent to the engines, it's at the, it's lower, the oxygen tank is, uh, oxidizer tanks above mm-hmm. it. And so it's consistent with the turbine overspinning, rupturing, breaking, fragmenting, and exploding, or not exploding, but yeah, basically sending out sharp shrapnel, which would explain then fuel leaking out uh, that way, rather yeah. than it being some kind of like, you know, it failed and that caused, you know, mechanical stresses that propagated its way at some point to the uh, to a, a valve or something else, a, a joint <laughs> that then the fuel leaked from. It might have just straight up been a tank being punctured and then spilling. Yeah. Anyway, let's move on to this week in spaceflight history. Uh, we have four winners. We have Desky Miller, the Greek, Ryan Regner, and Hydrek. 
So the clue was wait two months for a robot and seven months for a human. So what could that be in reference to? All right, so the event was on September 29th, 2011. It was the launch of Tiangong-1, uh, the first Chinese space station, and a lot of other firsts as well that we'll talk about. Um, so this is a this is a pretty big event. First thing, uh, there is a Tiangong space station right now, but the sort of the pathfinders were actually, I think it was one and two. Um, mm. So they have a number designation, but the one that's just called Tiangong, that's the actual fully fledged operational space station. Kinda, yeah. yeah. So the number scheme is just for the first two um, that were more like uh, test articles, but more than that. It's basically to test technologies for the current Tiangong space station. So it was originally scheduled to launch uh, in August, but due to a failed Long March 2C, which happened a couple months just prior to that, they actually delayed the launch of uh, the Tiangong because they wanted to verify that there wasn't anything wrong with the rocket that they were going to launch this vehicle on. So mm. the, it got pushed back by about a month. Um, it launched from Jiuquan into a 350-kilometer orbit with a 43-degree inclination. And one interesting thing that I saw referenced in the Wikipedia article, so I had to do a little bit more research. Um, this is kind of like off-topic. Well, not entirely, but um, this 43-degree inclination and the 350-kilometer perigee, I don't know how... I don't know what the eccentricity was, but, you know, it's a standard space station type of an orbit. Mm. There were some amateur astronomers that thought that uh, a recently launched X-37B was put into the exact same orbit as the Tiangong and that it was spying on it because uh, the X-37B was put into a 43-degree inclination at about 350 kilometers altitude. And this little rumor kind of caught fire. Uh, and mm. it was a, and the claim was somewhat bolstered by a BBC article that kind of didn't dismiss it. Um, or I guess didn't do all the research that they should have done. And they were kind of, you know, throwing it out there like, Hey, maybe the X-37B is, you know, like spying on this Chinese space station. But as it turns out, there was someone within, uh, within like the Pentagon, uh, who had basically clarified that, no, that's not what's going on because these are similar orbits, but they're actually not the same. So basically the right ascension of the two spacecraft is like different by about 100 degrees. So they're almost perpendicular, <laughs> if you will, to each other. So they don't actually like share the same orbit. They just cross paths and they do so at like seven kilometers a second. So those aren't ideal conditions for spying on someone. Uh, so, <laughs> not at all. but yeah, people thought that like, oh, it's like, you know, maintaining his position with Tiangong and collecting data or something, but mm -hmm. that was totally not happening. I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. I mean, and this would have been I mean, pretty bold for an early X-37B flight to be like, okay, we're going to go spy on another nation's uh, space station. Like, <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, yeah. So the primary purpose of Tiangong was testing the rendezvous and docking. That seems to be the major theme here because uh, this had never been done or China has had never up until now done a rendezvous and docking. So um, that's the purpose. And there were some other experiments that were done on board as well. Um, but just a little bit about the station. So it's a single module station, very small. Um, it has two sections. Uh, they, it's not two modules, so it's still one piece, but it has two sections. And one section, which is slightly smaller in diameter, is actually the service module. And that's not habitable, but you know, that's like the service module part. Um, mm -hmm. And then you have the habitable experiment module, and that's where the crew can stay. Um, and that's about 3.5 meters in diameter. The overall length is about about the size of a school bus, not super big, and it weighed about 8.5 metric tons. I don't know if that's wet or dry. I think that's its dry mass. And it had at the end of uh, the experiment module, it had an A-pass docking mechanism. Getting back to the clue, wait two months for a robot. So 
the reason for that is that um, once Tiangong was put into orbit, two months later, there was a Shenzhou 8 spacecraft visit. This was an uncrewed vehicle, and it did basically, in you know, like an automated docking um, or first rendezvous, then docking. So that's where the robot part comes in. And then, obviously, seven months later, the crew come aboard. So that's the explanation for the clue. So one interesting fact I found that I couldn't quite not verify, but I can't see what they mean because I looked at images. It is said that the interior of the Tiangong, it has a color scheme that's meant to orient the Taigonauts for up and down. I can't figure out in what way. I, there is one section that is painted, I guess, a slightly different shade than the other three sections because it's, you know, a it kind of looks like a corridor, you know, just like you would imagine, mm. you know, a space station looks like. Um, I don't know what they mean by a color scheme. I don't see a color scheme there, but I thought that was a cool touch. Um, if it is indeed real, that's a pretty <laughs> good idea because on the ISS, they just, you know, have little signs that indicate the zenith and nadir port starboard. Yeah, the orient, the, yeah, the, the writing, and I think it's like the lights are more overhead. Oh, um, perhaps, yeah. Also, but yeah, I don't know what, what a color scheme to orient you would mean. What it would mean to me is if you put like, if you made the zenith maybe blue and the nadir green, like grass maybe, something, something like that. <laughs> right, right. And you even paint little clouds or whatever. I don't know. But, uh, but yeah, yeah I, I can't see any difference in color between the four walls there, you know? Yeah, right. I mean, it, it all has that kind of uh, yellowish. I mean, and yeah. I don't know if that's just the, the television, the, the close-circuit close, uh, TV that uh, I've seen these images from. But yeah, it does just have this yellowish tint to it. I don't see, yeah, a different color. So getting back to the Shenzhou 8, the first ever orbital docking for China. So this first ever docking was actually an uncrewed one which I think is maybe even cooler because they managed to, you know, do this whole thing autonomously. And, uh, well, not autonomously. They did it remotely. That's actually a better way of putting it. And the docking mechanism, like I said, it's an A-pass. So it's similar to a Russian-style docking mechanism. And there's a little bit of dispute as to whether it actually would be compatible with the current generation A-pass systems. China claims that Shenzhou, for example, it would be able to dock with the ISS. Although, hmm. I don't know, there seems to be some skepticism there because it's not actually an ape or it's not, you know, it's not a duplicate of the Russian version, although it is very closely related to it. In fact, it, it seems as though this was basically just a docking mechanism purchased from Russia, but I think that they made some modifications and so maybe it might not dock. Plus, there are different versions of the APAS. Um, the current one, I forget what it is. It's like the, it's like the APAS-95 or something. There's, you know, like all these different iterations on it. And, um, basically, this robot Shenzhou, after 12 days of just sitting there docked, it actually undocked to a distance of 460 feet, and then it redocked again. And this was to test the reusability of the docking mechanism, which is another interesting, I guess, thing you need to verify if you can do more than one. That seems like something that you would know on the ground, like you would need to test that in space. Mm -hmm. um, but I guess they just wanted to verify, um, which actually, now that I think about it, you do want to be certain of that, I suppose, if you're, if you're going to send a crew up there. Like, you want to make sure that something didn't go wrong the first time, perhaps, that mm -hmm. rendered it somehow inoperable, that they couldn't dock another spacecraft. So, um, and the conditions of this second docking were actually more difficult due to extreme lighting conditions. And that's in quotes. Um, I suppose this means that they were just going from, you know, daytime to nighttime in the orbit. I'm not sure, you know, light or dark. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know how much more extreme it gets unless there's, you can think of anything, but I mean, yeah, like the 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 lighting angle, the direction that it comes in, I guess, is a variable, and yeah, I, I, I but I don't know what would be 
extreme in that regard. If, 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 if the light was kind of behind you and so everything was being lit almost kind of from the same direction the module would come, then there might not be as many shadows that you would expect. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> That's the only other kind of extreme I could think of. Otherwise, you know, it's in the dark. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so the crew arrived, um, as uh, Ben pointed out in his clue, seven months later on June 18th of 2012, and they came aboard the Shenzhou 9. Uh, so the crew was commanded by uh, Jing Haipeng. The docking was piloted by Liu Wang. Then the third crew member was Liu Yang, so or Liu Yang, not to be confused with Liu Wang, just to be clear there. Um, and uh, she was actually China's first female taikonaut. So that's another precedent there. Um, so yeah, three people on board. But can you really fit three people on board this little space station? And the answer is actually no. So oh, um, it's actually more like two-thirds of a space station. So what happened for this first crew um, is it on board... Tiangong, there is no toilet and there is no cooking facilities, and there's only room for two crew members to sleep. So what happens is once the Shenzhou is docked, they actually use that for all those other needs. So a third crew member had to sleep inside the Shenzhou while the other two slept inside the Tiangong. Um, and then if you needed to use the bathroom or get something to eat, you had to go back to the Shenzhou. I thought that that was an interesting little fact that it's a space station with no, no toilet. So you really want to make sure you keep that spacecraft docked. Yeah, yeah, that's that is interesting because because yeah, even right, sure, sure, people will sleep in say a crew dragon on station, but the station still has you know toilets. <laughs> so getting to a couple of experiments aboard Tiangong, uh, there was the obligatory crystal growth experiment, which I always like to point out uh, jokingly. You know, just mm-hmm. to, like every time you. Have any, like, if you're going to spend time on board a space station, you need to grow some crystals. That's just what you got to do. It's mm. in the, you know, space station handbook somewhere. <laughs> um, and, um, this one was to observe crystal growth in colloidal material and, of course, in microgravity, because that's the whole idea. Mm. That was one experiment. They also had spectral imagery of Earth's surface that was done with some instruments that they had on board. And I did read at least two specific references to how this helped in some natural disasters. There was one in southern China, which was a flood, and then there was a forest fire somewhere in Australia. So apparently there was data that was taken during this short span of time aboard Tiangong that was used to help in that regard. And so after six days, once the crew was in orbit, uh, the crew commander, Jing Haipeng, he actually did another undocking redocking. So just like Shenzhou 8 did. Why this was, I'm not sure. It, it's listed as being the first time that a person performed a docking. But I thought that that was by the pilot when they had initially docked. So I'm not sure about that. It might just be, at least I think it's basically just to get as many people familiar with that particular procedure as possible, since this is the first time like any Chinese citizen has, Mm. you know, has ever docked. So why not have two people do it instead of just one? Could it be that they're distinguishing between an automated docking versus a manual one? Because are you certain that that first one that the pilot did was manual it did say in one article i read that the other guy leo wang actually performed the initial docking then it says that jing haipeng did the first docking by a person so i'm not sure according well and this is just wikipedia it does sort uh, have different things but on the 18th of june uh was the first crewed rendezvous for the chinese space program and automated docking with tiangong one first crew docking by the chinese space program and then the next event is on the 24th of June, and it's Shenzhou 9 on docks with Tiangong 1, 
And then Shenzhou 9 redocks with Tiangong 1, first manual docking by the Chinese space program, mm. second crewed docking by the program. So maybe they're making the distinction between... I you know, see what you're saying, yeah. He, he can be the, piloting during the manual, sorry, during an automatic docking, because, um, you know, I mean, that still happens, I think, with, you know, I, I, I can't remember which one, but, you know, they'll talk about uh, a Soyuz coming to station and... Uh, it was automatic docking, but they had to switch to manual because of something that had the antenna failed to lock or something like that. And so, but I'm guessing that's kind of the distinction yep. they're making. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah. And that, and that was a good idea looking up Shenzhou 9. Oh, thanks. Specifically, look up the vehicle and not the space station. <laughs> <laughs> but the first manual docking, yeah. So that was performed by. Uh, Jing Haipeng, the very first manual docking. All right. I'm sure. I'm sure Liu Wang still had to, you know, press some buttons during the automated docking. So yeah, <laughs> but. yeah. Liu Wang as pilot, I'm sure did some other important things on the way to orbit, maybe, and then coming back. Uh, but the actual docking maneuver that was not performed by him. That was done by Jing Haipeng. Uh, but then after four more days on day ten, they departed for good. There was one other crewed mission. I believe it was just one other to Tiangong 1, but I just wanted to cover this initial one because I feel like uh, what happens on board Tiangong 1 later on is something maybe we could say for another twist. Mm -hmm. So these were like the first few months of Tiangong's time on orbit. And then it spent several more years past its you know expected lifetime, but it mostly sat uh, crewless. Mm. It just remained in orbit and then it was deorbited and that was a whole big thing. But again, we'll probably talk about that in a different twist. But the Shenzhou 9 crew safely touched down in Inner Mongolia, which is where they routinely come back. And uh, yeah, so it was a very successful mission. And and like I said, there was one other one that maybe we'll cover on a different date. And uh, fast forward to now, they have, you know, Tiangong proper. There's no one or two at the end of it. Uh, okay. And that's where things sit currently. But yeah, so these were the first steps of the Chinese space agency in putting a space station in orbit. Very cool. Thank you for doing that one. I, uh, I knew zero about Tiangong 1. And so I know you had to do some digging to get... Uh, all this uh, detailed information, but I think it came out great. Perhaps if my Chinese was better, I could do better, but I figured, <laughs> yeah, right. I didn't, I figured I didn't want to risk a lot of Google translating of documents because you never know how, how that's going to, or how useful that's going to be. <laughs> so next week, the date range for the event is the 4th through the 10th of October. Dennis, do you have a clue for us on behalf of either Ben or maybe yourself, depending yes. on who does the twist? <laughs> yeah, indeed I do. Next week in 1990, it's already a long enough trip without adding four years. Well, if you think you know what that clue is in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF, and good luck. Good luck, everybody. Let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events. Uh, we have a bunch of them, so let's get into those. And thank you to Launch Library 2, uh, which is where we start our research each week, as always. Uh, and Dennis, what is the first event? Uh, first one is uh, an interesting NASA TV event. So this is Wednesday, September 28th, and it is the ISS Expedition 67 to 68 Change of Command Ceremony. And so Artemyev uh, is going to be handing over the ISS command to uh, Sam Christopheretti. Uh, this is uh, footage of that will take place again on NASA TV at 9.35 a.m. Eastern. All right. And then on September 29th, we have uh, coverage of the undocking of the International Space Station for Expedition 67, which is Soyuz M-21. So this is three people. This is uh, Artemyev, Matveyev, and Korsakov. So three Russian cosmonauts coming back. And the coverage begins at 3.15 in the morning. So 
really early. That's 3.15 Eastern Daylight Time. The coverage of the deorbit begins around 5.45. And the deorbit burn is scheduled for 6.03. And then the landing is scheduled for 6.57. And that's all Eastern Time. So, yeah, you're going to have to get up pretty early, you know, like 3.15 in the morning if you want to watch it on dock. But if you want to watch it just maybe land, then not too early, like 6.57. That's not too bad. But, yeah, you can check that out on NASA TV. Well, definitely for the night owls or people yeah. <laughs> who uh, work the late shift. So, yeah. Uh, and then another one of these uh, uh, planetary events that you can't watch in person but keep a heads up for because I hope there's going to be some amazing pictures that we get afterwards. But uh, Juno, the spacecraft around Jupiter, it's going to be Perijove 45 on September 29th. And what's really cool about this is that it includes a flyby of Europa. And so it is going to be mm-hmm. flying by Europa. They almost launched this thing without a camera, if you remember. <laughs> and now, uh, you know, I mean, it does have the camera, though, of course, and this amazing footage that mostly, you know, the amateur uh, community has really taken these photos and processed them, uh, right, because they're, they're available to everybody. And so there's just all those stunning pictures of Jupiter up close. But anyway, Europa flyby. Um, this is going to reduce the period of the spacecraft from 43 days to 38 days. And so it'll be uh, heading through the giant planet uh more frequently uh yeah <laughs> uh, moving forward but and it's not the last of these uh flybys it has some more coming up but you know it's a long mission it's going to be a number of years of these and so i guess yeah you'll hear from me uh next in um i suppose 2023 uh over a year from now in december 2023 it's going to have an I- a flyby of io and then in February 2024, another flyby of Io. And then after that, on September 30th, we have the launch of Firefly Alpha. And this mission is being called To the Black because that's where they're going. So, yeah, this is a second <laughs> test flight of the Firefly Alpha small sat launcher. The window for that, like I said, is on September 30th. And the time is uh, 0701 UTC through 0900 UTC. So about two hours. Um, and it's going to be launching from the Vandenberg uh, Space Force Base in California from Space Launch Complex to W. So that'll be really cool. Yeah. Good luck to them. Yep. And then the same day, again, Friday, September 30th, we have an Atlas V launch. And so this is in the 531 configuration, and it'll be taking a big old pair of communication satellites, uh, SES-20 and SES-21. So these are C-band uh, Boeing-built communication satellites uh, that uh, are using a uh, an all-electric prop- propulsion uh, satellite bus. And... Um, uh, like Atlas V flights tend to, uh, this will be launching out of the Cape, uh, at, uh, Slick 41. And the window, again, uh, September 30th, Friday, uh, runs from 2136 to 2216 UTC. All right. And then after that, on October 3rd, we have a Falcon 9 launching SpaceX Crew 5. All right. So we're sending crew up to the ISS. And, uh, this is really cool. So we have, Let's see, four crew members going up this time. They are uh, from left to right in the photo that I'm looking at. Um, not that that matters to anyone listening. Uh, mission specialist Anna Kikina from Roscosmos. Uh, the pilot will be Josh Casada and Commander Nicole Aonapu Man. They're both from NASA. And then there's a mission specialist uh, from Japan, Koichi Wakata, uh, who is from JAXA. So, yeah, four people going up. That's awesome. They have the... Well, see, that Crew Dragon has a total of seven seats. Uh, four is a reasonable number if that's your max capacity, I think. <laughs> so, 
Um, yeah, check that one out uh, again on October 3rd. And the window for that is, it looks to be an instantaneous window at 1645 UTC. So, yep, you can check that out wherever you would like. That'll be a cool one to watch. And then finally, our last uh, event that's upcoming will be an Electron launch. So even more Rocket Lab news. And so this is the uh, It Argos Up From Here mission. That's fun. Um, That's great and, and I'm glad I actually read about this for the, 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 the news article, but essentially the, um, this, this Argos 4, uh, uh, is, is going to be a payload on a general atomics, uh, electromagnetic systems, uh, spacecraft, uh, called Gazelle. Uh, that's the name of the, the, uh, mission or, or the spacecraft. But, uh, the Argos 4, uh, payload essentially communicates with all these, uh, there's literally like almost like, some 20,000 of these Argos transmitters on Earth uh, scattered all over the place that these uh, wow. c- communicate with. And so you put them on buoys, you put them on animals, you put them on whatever you want to do for, I guess, your Earth science uh, observations. And so that's what this Argo system is. Very cool stuff. And so uh, in any mm. event, like I said, uh, this is an Electron Rocket Lab launch. And so this will be for Wednesday, October 5th at 1704 UTC, flying out of the uh, Mahia Peninsula in New Zealand at uh, Rocket Lab Launch Complex 1B. Not quite to wallops yet. So those are your upcoming spaceflight events. All right. And so with that, let's do with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Deathkin, Stanley Fuyu, Colin, Chubby, Brian Regner, Kenton, Gopal, Dave M., Chris, a.k.a. Sty Garfield, and The Greek for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And if you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. And you can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it, and we'll see you on next week on Orbit. Until then, later. See you.